With this lesson, and this is lesson number 54 in our books, The Compassionate Christ Part 2, we're going to continue our look at the Lord's compassionate responses to various human conditions that we began two weeks ago in lesson number 53 when we opened up for the first time volume number three in our Life of Christ study. Remember, we had discussed his response to faith in the Roman centurion, Then we discussed his compassionate response to despair with the widow of Nain, who had lost her only son. And now, today, we're going to consider the Lord's compassionate response to doubt, D-O-U-B-T, doubt, which occurs even in the godliest of people. In this case, who was it? Who had doubt in our lesson this morning that we'll be looking at? John The Baptist is the one who expressed doubt. So doubt does occur in even the godliest of people. In our look at Matthew 11, if you want to open up to Matthew 11, we'll be looking at verses 2 to 19, and also Luke 7. Keep yourself in those two places. Matthew 11, 2 to 19, and Luke 7, 18 to 35. We're going to be discussing four points. We'll be looking at the confusion of John. We'll look at the confirmation to John of, of, by Christ. We'll look at the commendation of John and then the condemnation of the Jews. So let's begin by looking at the confusion of John. And for this, I want to read Luke 7, Luke 7, verses 18 and 19. Starting at verse 18 of Luke 7, it says, And the disciples of John showed him all of these things. What things? Well, the things that he had just been doing. Remember, he had healed the Roman centurion's uh, servant. And, of course, before that, he had spoken the Sermon on the Mount. And they um, also had walked all the way to Nain, and he uh, raised the widow's only son there in Nain. So the disciples of John showed him all these things or told him, really, about all of these things. And John, now John, we find out it over in Luke, was in prison at this time. So John in prison called unto him two of his disciples and sent them to Jesus, saying, Art thou he that should come? In other words, are you the anointed one? Are you the promised Messiah? Or look we for another? This is the confusion of John. The ministry of of John the Baptist wasn't very long at all. Some say it was about maybe 18 months altogether. But it ended very abruptly with his arrest and his imprisonment by Herod Antipas, who was the notorious grandson of Herod the Great. After Herod the Great died, uh, the the rule of Palestine was divided, you know, was given over to four of his sons, and Herod Antipas was one of his sons, and he ruled Galilee and Perea. So he was called a tetrarch. Tetrarch means one-fourth. So he ruled not like Herod the Great, who had the rule of the whole Palestine, but he only ruled one-fourth of it. Back in Luke chapter 3, verses 19 and 20, we read that Herod Antipas, the tetrarch of Galilee and Perea, had put John the Baptist in the citadel prison at Machairus, which was located near the southern border of Perea in a real rough mountainous area. Herod's palace was actually on one end of a mountain ridge, very hard to get to. 
he, he put himself in this remote palace so that it would be hard to attack him. Anyway, his palace was located at one end of the mountain ridge, and the prison was located at the other end of this mountain ridge. It was very remote. And John was imprisoned because he had very boldly and fearlessly spoken out against Herod's sins. John, you know, was not a two-faced preacher at all. He did not preach real hard against the, uh, or to the common people and, and go, you know, tiptoeing when it came to the high officials. He didn't go soft in his preaching with the high officials or with influential people or even with a powerful and evil king such as Herod Antipas. He was, John was no respecter of persons, just like the Lord Jesus. He very faithfully proclaimed his God-given message regardless of who was in his audience. Now, there were occasions when Herod Antipas had listened to, to John gladly. We are told that over in Mark 6.20. Because he, you know, the, the prophet intrigued him. And part of Herod was attracted to the Baptist's personality and to his powerful preaching. However, when John publicly denounced his adulterous marriage to Herodias, who was his brother Philip's wife, he had an adulterous affair with her, and then he divorced his own wife and married his brother's wife. It's interesting that his name was Herod and her name was Herodias, because you know, basically the same name. Um, but anyway, uh, that's when he got upset. Herod got very upset, probably mostly because his wife got upset. Mark tells us that Herod put John in prison for Herodias's sake. So I'm sure his wife had a lot to do with it. We know that she had a lot to do with John being beheaded, didn't she? And this is typical of so many people. They will admire good, powerful preaching until when? Until it begin, begins to step on their own toes and point at their own sin. And then they get angry, and often what they do is they will attack the preacher. Yet, though Satan and his dupes may throw God's messengers in prison, you know what? They can never imprison God's message. They can throw the messengers in prison, but they cannot imprison the message. It says in 2 Timothy 2.9, the word of God is not bound. It can never be bound. Furthermore, the anti-God world may take God's messengers out of view of society, you know, hide them away somewhere, such as John in a dungeon prison, but they can never be out of God's sight. Do you think God knew where John was? Of course he did. In his confinement in a small, dark, underground, depressing dungeon, John may have had a moment of doubt when he perhaps thought that God had forgotten him, but we all know that God had not forgotten him at all. Confinement in a horrible, remote, dark dungeon, and they, they have found this dungeon. It still exists. They know what it looked like, and it was very, very dismal. That would be a real trial for anybody, wouldn't it? Would any of you want to be in a deep, dark, stinky, nasty, awful dungeon? No, of course not. But how much more of a trial would this be for a man like the Baptist, who was definitely what you would call an outdoors person? 
<laughs> he was definitely an outdoor man, a man who was used to the great freedom of movement out there in the wilderness, a man who loved the fresh air and open spaces and, and you know, and the, the sunshine of the wilderness. And how much more of a trial for a man to be silenced who had been given from the, the womb, from the time of his mother's womb, a divine mandate to preach, you know? That's what he lived for, was to preach. And here he was silenced. It's actually a test of our own faith to see someone like John the Baptist put in, in prison and then eventually beheaded. We may be prone to question how a godless, immoral man and woman, Herod and Herodias, would be allowed to cut off the ministry of such a great person, such a great prophet of God as John the Baptist, and to remove him permanently from society. He never did get out of prison. He was beheaded shortly after this. How could this be? The incongruity of the situation seems so unfair, doesn't it? The evil duo, Herod and Herodias, were sitting in the luxury of the palace on one side of that ridge, while the godly Baptist was detained in that stinking prison on the other side of the ridge. You know, that just seems so unfair. Why do the wicked seemingly prosper while treading on the godly? Why is this incongruity so common in our world today? Why are, and always has been, why are truth and righteousness so frequently thrown in the dungeon while those who live wickedly are accorded so much of the finery of life? These are questions that men and women of God have asked. They're even recorded for us in the Bible. You know, why do the, the wicked prosper? We may think of such examples as Joseph in prison for so many years. Did that seem fair? We may think of um, Jeremiah in the miry pit or Daniel. Where was he? In the lion's den or the Baptist here in, in uh, Herod's prison or um, Christ on the cross or, you know, Paul and, and uh, Barnabas in prison or countless Christians, you know, from all, from all ages of the church, well, all throughout the church age, we could say the apostles all the way down to present time, thrown in prison cells and martyred. Is this a rightful cause for doubt, for, having, for us having doubt in our faith, for having doubt in Jesus Christ? Does such injustice mean that God has lost control? Or does it mean that he has uh, perhaps simply forgotten his own? Or that he is somehow indifferent and no longer cares about us? Does, is that what it means? Is it, is it reason for doubt? Do you know how many people wrongly reason that if God is so powerful... And if he really cares for and loves us, then why does he allow bad things to happen to, to us? Why does he allow bad things to happen to good people? Do you know how many think like that? Have you ever heard that asked before? You know, if God is a God of love, why is there so much evil in the world? <laughs> is that biblical thinking? It isn't. It's not at all. The Bible teaches us that, and we've talked about this so many times, I feel redundant up here, but the Bible teaches us that it is through trials that people uh, grow, that we receive.
spiritual growth, that we uh, receive increased blessings and even enlarged ministries. And time alone reveals this truth, as it did with Joseph, didn't it? Give him enough time, you know, don't stop in the middle of the story, wait till the end of the story. He went from the pit to the pinnacle, and as it did with Jeremiah and Daniel and the apostles and even, yes, even John the Baptist. The imprisonment of the Baptist and even his beheading served God's eternal purposes, some of which we may not know until we get to heaven, but some we do know. For, for one, his imprisonment and his beheading was actually fulfillment of his own prophecy. He said that he must decrease so that Christ might increase. His ministry was over. It was time for him to get out of the picture. One reason for John's um, imprisonment that we do know is also that it was for our benefit so that we are taught some valuable lessons concerning doubts in our own Christian walk with the Lord and how we are to deal with doubts. Do we ever have doubts? If we're all honest, we would admit, yes, that we do. Well, John's imprisonment and his doubt tell us how we should deal with our doubts. Now, although John was isolated from society, yet he was obviously allowed some visitors, and we know this because he had access to his loyal disciples. And he sent two of those disciples to Jesus with this question. The question was, Art thou he that should come, or do we look for another? Now, his disciples were indeed very loyal, if you think about these two guys going all the way to that prison in Machairus um, to visit with John because they were literally taking their own lives in their hands to visit one who was so out of favor with Herod. You know, that was a dangerous thing to go and visit John the Baptist. So they were definitely faithful disciples. You know, we've said this before also, and again, I'll probably say it more and more as we go along in our study of the life of Christ, but one of the evidences for the veracity of the um, divine inspiration of Scripture <clears throat> is that it so faithfully gives to us the failures as well as the victories of some of its most famous and greatest people. For example, when we studied uh, Genesis, it revealed to us the truth about Abraham and Isaac both lying. Now, if men had written that, uh, they probably would have covered up, you know, not mentioned those lies of Abraham and Isaac. But the scripture gives them to us. And we're told about Moses losing his temper. And we're told about the depression of Elijah, you know, under the juniper tree. And we are told about the adultery and murder of who? King David. And the pride of the great king Hezekiah, wonderful king, and yet he had an issue with pride at one point in time. And we're told about the denials of the apostle Peter, as well as many others. And we learn that even the great, the, the, no one was greater than John the Baptist. We even learn about a man as great as the Baptist um, on one occasion having failed when he expressed doubt about Jesus Christ. And what does this teach us? That the, not only that the scripture has to be divinely inspired to reveal all these things, but also it teaches us that uh, these great saints were just like us, weren't they? They, they, weren't, they? they were flesh and blood just like you and me. 
And that gives me hope. I don't know about you, but it gives me hope that I see they could fail and, and God would still lift them back up. So it gives me hope. Well, when we look at the message that John sent to Jesus via these two disciples, it really shocks us. I know the first time I ever read it, I, whoa, am I reading that right? Am I really seeing that, what I'm reading? I can hardly believe my eyes. How could this be the, the same man who was filled with the Holy Spirit from the time of his mother's womb? How could this be the one who stood so firmly and so boldly against the, the hypocrisy and the sinfulness of, of Israel's religious rulers when he pointed his finger at them and called them what? A generation of vipers. <laughs> You know, how could this be the same one who so gallantly uh, spoke out against the sin of Herod and Herodias? How could this be the very one who so earnestly pointed men to Jesus and announced to both Israel and subsequently the whole world that this was the lamb which cometh to take away the sin of the whole world? You know, this is the same guy saying, are you the one or should we look for someone else? He was the very one who so humbly proclaimed that he wasn't even worthy to do what? Unlatch the the Lord's sandals. Could this be the same man who now asks of Jesus, Jesus if he is indeed the Messiah? Is it the same man? Yes, it is one and the same man. And the Bible, inspired by God, faithfully recorded this time in his life when he went through a period of doubt. After all, although John was a great model for you and I to emulate, he was not perfect. He was not sinless. He was a human being born with the sin nature, just like you and me. And this experience of his was recorded for our benefit and for our learning and for us once again to realize that Christ and Christ alone is the only one who ever lived a sinless, perfect life, the one who only reached total perfection. Also, as mentioned, it is for us to see how the compassionate Christ, remember we're in a two-part study on the compassion of Christ, we're to see how the compassionate Christ responds to the doubts of his own people. What does the doubt of John actually mean? Does it mean that he lost his faith in Jesus? What does it mean when you and I have doubts and confusion? about Jesus Christ and who he is. Is doubt the same as unbelief? When we, as Christians, and I'm talking about true, born-again Christians, when we, as Christians, have doubts, does it mean that we have lost our salvation or that we may have never truly been saved? Well, first of all, to answer these questions, what we need to do is consider the difference between doubt and disbelief. The difference between doubt and disbelief. The doubt which was expressed by John the Baptist is that of the confusion of a true believer. And it really is not that difficult to understand when we consider his circumstances and when we consider his complete incomplete understanding of God's total redemptive program. His circumstances were very depressing. I know if I was in his shoes in that dungeon, after all he had done to serve the Lord, I would be 
very depressed. So his circumstances were depressing. And uh, it, it's difficult, to say the least, to keep up a, a consistent positive attitude in the midst of very oppressing, depressing circumstances, isn't it? It's hard to constantly be upbeat and positive when you're in really bad circumstances. And John was definitely in the midst of very oppressing circumstances. He had been obedient to the calling of God his entire life. He had faithfully kept the Nazarite vow his entire life. And he was probably about 30, 32 years old. He was six months older than Jesus, so 30, 31, 32 years old. He kept the Nazarite vow his entire life. He had not compromised on anything. He had literally sacrificed all that he was, you know, giving up every possible creature comfort in order to present a flawless testimony for the Lord to the nation of Israel. And yet he was in bonds in a cruel, clammy, deep, dark prison. And he was the victim of gross injustice. It must have been very hard for him to hear, you know, through his disciples. His, his disciples were faithful, and they kept, you know, they would visit him and tell him all that Jesus was doing. So it was very, would have been very hard for him to hear about Jesus speaking, uh, uh, hear about Jesus doing unto others um, what, what he would have had done unto him, you know, the golden rule, and yet not doing it for him. For, for John, it would be hard for him to hear about Jesus going throughout all of Galilee and uh, performing compassionate deeds of love and mercy and healing for others. You know, even for Gentiles, such as the Roman centurion, he heard about that. And for a widow woman in Nain, you know, all these wonderful things he was doing for other people while he seemed to have forgotten about him there in that lonely prison. Why did Jesus leave him to rot in a, in a prison cell? Why did he perform compa compassionate acts of mercy for so many others and didn't come to him? I mean, not only was he his herald and his forerunner, but he was also his cousin, remember. And why didn't he come to him? If he truly was the Messiah, why didn't he come to southern Perea and set his forerunner free? Wouldn't you be wondering that? If you were John, I mean, it's just human nature. Don't you and I think like this at times, especially when our circumstances aren't so great? And none of us have probably ever been put into a, uh, a dungeon like this with the threat of, of death before us. Have you? Has anybody ever been in a dungeon? If you have, raise your hand. We'll acknowledge you right now for your faith, for speaking out the truth. Don't we sometimes look at those that the Lord is blessing and then wonder why we are suffering? They're being blessed and we're suffering. John must have wondered why prison and physical confinement and shame and loneliness were his rewards for such faithful service. If Jesus was the promised Messiah who had come to set the captives free then why did he allow his forerunner to remain in prison under the power of a very sinful man? Why did he never even come to visit him or to send word to him? As far as we know, he didn't. Maybe he did, but there's no record that he did. 
But of course, as with everything that the Lord did, he had his reasons, didn't he? You know, we may not know all that they were, but he, I can guarantee you one thing, he had his reasons. But from John's perspective, when all he could see were the ugly walls of his dark dungeon, it was hard not to have doubts. Furthermore, we have to remember that John was still under the influence of, of uh, popular misconceptions about the Messiah. The ministry of the Lord Jesus at his first coming was very, very difficult for the Jews to understand. Their concept of the Messiah was one who would come to earth and destroy the hated enemies of the Jews and who would set up a kingdom that would overpower all the kingdoms of the world. You know, they, the, the humility side of the first coming wasn't, wasn't understood very well at all by the Jews. Even though John referred to Jesus as the Lamb of God, and even though he was not as materialistic in his thinking of the kingdom as the average uh, Israelite, nevertheless, John's view of the Lord's ministry would have included more judgment action than what Christ was doing. Part of John's message was that the axe would be laid to the root of the tree. Remember that? Part of his preaching in Matthew 3.10? And that his fan in, with his fan in his hand, Christ would thoroughly purge his floor and burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. That was part of John's preaching about Christ, the Messiah. You know, what does it speak of? Judgment. Judgment. But the Lord Jesus had done none of that so far. Where was his judgment on the wicked religious rulers of Israel? who were now out to permanently silence him. Uh, where was his judgment on evil Herod, who had so unfairly treated his own ambassador, his own herald? Why didn't Jesus do something about the oppressing, um, the oppressing rule of Rome? All of these things, you know, John would be thinking about and wondering about. And putting these concepts of Christ's ministry together with his depressing circumstances, we can readily see why John would ask, Art thou he should come, art thou he that should come, or look we for another? However, this was the perplexity of a true believer. You see, John was not at all doubting the accuracy and the truthfulness of God's word. The Old Testament. Now, of course, the Old Testament was all he had. But he wasn't doubting the inspiration of the scripture at all or the truthfulness of it. He was in confusion over his own understanding of those truths. The biggest difference between doubt and disbelief is that doubt is a matter of the mind, whereas disbelief is a matter of the will. Did you get that? Doubt is a matter of the the. Um, mind, whereas disbelief is a matter of the will. Even as believers, we cannot always understand, you know, from our limited perspective and with our finite, limited minds, we cannot always understand what God is doing and why. John the Baptist was not willfully disbelieving. He was doubtful 
of his own mind's understanding of all that was happening. You know, maybe he had misinterpreted God's word and pointed to the wrong individual. At any rate, we do learn from John what we ourselves should do when we are hit with any attack of doubt. We should really follow his example here if, when we have doubts, okay? It's very important that we do the right thing when doubts come to our lives because how we react is going to determine whether our doubts overcome us or whether we overcome our doubts. Do you want your doubts to overcome you? No, we need to overcome them. So we need to follow John's example. And we notice, first of all, and this is a good point, that John was not content to remain in a state of doubt. So we should never be content when we're having doubts about anything to do with Christ and the scripture. We shouldn't be content. And the good thing that John did was that he took action to deal with his doubt. He wanted certainty. He didn't want to remain in a state of confusion and doubt. He wanted certainty. He didn't want to remain in a position where he didn't know for sure what was going on, especially with regard to spiritual matters. Is this important? You know, the one area that we need to be most certain about is the area of spiritual matters, wouldn't you say? That's the most important area of all. Eternity is not something that we need to be uncertain about. As you ask so many people, you know, do you know where you're going when you die? Well, I'm not real sure, but I hope I'll go to heaven. Man, alive, that's one area you really need to have certainty about. You need to be able to say, I know where I'm going when I die. Determining who Jesus Christ is, and that was what this was all about. You know, are you the, the, the Messiah or should we look for another? Determining who Christ is is the most important matter in all of life about which to be certain. Because our position in this matter does happen to determine where we will spend eternity, right? So this is a very important doubt that John had. John Butler writes this. He says, of course, the world would tell us we cannot know for certain in spiritual matters. For Satan does not want us to do anything about our doubts. He wants us to keep them. And a good many do just that. In fact, some boast of their doubts. They write them up in a book. They preach them. And they extol them. Many apostate ministers do that. They seem to think it is a mark of intelligence to doubt every Bible truth they can. He says, it is not a wise man, however, who honors his doubts. He does not help anyone. If you have nothing to speak about regarding your spiritual faith but doubts, then sit down. And I add, and shut up. <laughs> he says, let someone talk who knows what is certain. Do you want to go and hear somebody preach who doesn't even know what they're, if they're going to heaven or not? I don't. He says, let someone who knows what they're talking about and are, is certain, let them speak up. They can be a help to the soul, but you with your doubts cannot. Someone with doubts can't help anybody else's soul. They haven't even helped their own soul. All right, the second good thing that John did with regard to his doubts was that he went to the right place to get help, didn't he? 
he went to the, he took his doubts where to the lord and that you know you think about that that is interesting in itself because it tells us that john really still did have the utmost confidence in the lord he sent his disciples to jesus and this is evidence that his doubts were not the doubts of an unbeliever. An unbeliever would not question Jesus himself by asking him if he was a false messiah. <laughs> you know, if John did not have faith in Jesus, why would he trust his answer? <laughs> Think about it. You can't trust the answers of a false teacher, can you? No. You can't trust the yes or no of a false messiah. A real imposter is not going to give, you know, he's not going to admit that he is a real imposter. Yes, I'm, I'm just faking, so you do need to go see another. I mean, you know, that's crazy. What John did in sending his disciples to Jesus was a demonstration, really, that he did believe Jesus was the promised messiah. And you know what he needed? He just needed some encouragement he just needed some renewed evidence isn't that what we need sometimes you know we just need some strengthening some refresh refreshing evidence and proof that's what i do i don't have doubts very often but about the lord jesus but if i ever do you know what i do i immediately refresh myself in god's word and look again at who he is what he did the messianic prophecies, and it doesn't take long before those doubts just are gone. John just needed, you know, he was, he was undergoing, he was going, undergoing some hard times. He was in a time of confusion and doubt in his spiritual life, and we've all been there. He, he, just, he just needed to go to Jesus. He needed to go and hear God's word proclaimed again, and that is what John John wanted, really. He wanted the word of God refreshed to his heart. So he sent his disciples to Jesus because he needed confirmation of his own understanding of the Lord's person. He needed confirmation also of the Lord's power. And the ever-patient, ever-compassionate Lord Jesus was happy to respond with just what John needed, which was some additional testimony that his original understanding of who Jesus is was absolutely correct. So let's look at confirmation to John. And for this, let's flip over to Matthew 11 and look at verses 6. John 11, 4 to 6. Jesus answered and said unto them, unto the two disciples of John, he said, go and show John again those things which ye do hear and see. The blind receive their sight, and the lame walk. The lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear. The dead are raised up, and the poor have the gospel preached to them. And blessed is he whosoever shall not be offended in me. All right, notice that when John's disciples asked Jesus the Baptist's question, are you he that should come, you know, or should we look for another, the Lord did not answer with just a yes or a no, did he? He didn't just say, yes, I'm the Messiah, or no, go and look for another. He, neither did he um, take those disciples and sit them down and give them a lecture on messianic prophecy and how he fulfilled it. Or he didn't give them a lesson on theology or soteriology or eschatology. What, what did he do instead? 
he gave his beloved forerunner, John the Baptist, a direct and personal response. And he did it in that same hour. I'm not sure if that's in this account or it may be over in Luke. I don't have the verses for that in front of me. Have you got them? Okay. Yeah, all right. In Luke 7, 21, it says, And in that same hour he cured many. Now, there was a crowd around him. So he cured many of their infirmities and plagues and of evil spirits. He cast out demons, in other words. And unto many that were blind he gave sight in that same hour. So what he did is he gave his uh, beloved forerunner, John the Baptist, a direct and personal response that very same hour. He invited John's disciples to directly Witness one miracle after another. He healed many people, we're told, of diseases and of plagues and cast out many demons, and he even made those who were blind to see. And he did all of this in front of those two men. These were his credentials as Messiah. Also, he preached to the poor, which was another credential. He didn't come preaching to the high and mighty. He came to preach to the the common person. These were his credentials. These were the words that the Old Testament had predicted the true Messiah would perform. Just the kinds of things that the, to look for in a true Messiah. It's interesting to notice the word again, and that was back over in uh, Luke, no, Matthew 11:4 that Jesus used when he was speaking to the disciples of John. He said, go and show John again those things which ye do hear and see. You see... The Lord knew he needed some refreshing. That was all, you know. And he is ever patient and he is ever compassionate in teaching you and me the same things over and over and over again, isn't he? I mean, sometimes it seems like repetition to us, but we're all pretty slow learners. I don't know about you, but I need the same thing told to me over and over and over again. We need to be reading and studying our Bibles again and again, just like we have to breathe all the time, in and out, in and out. You know, we have to feed ourselves every day. We also need to be constantly in the Word of God. We need to be in church week after week. We need to hear the Word of God taught and preached to us again and again because we need constant review. Otherwise, you know what happens? Doubts creep in. And the greatest promises of the word of God and the best proofs and the strongest warnings of scripture will do us absolutely no good at all if we forget them. And the older I get, you know, the worse my brain is getting as far as remembering things, so I constantly need to be reminding myself and refreshing myself in God's word. And that is why our whole lives long we must constantly be in the word again and again. If we are to stay strong in our faith and overcome our doubts and overcome our circumstances. John was simply to review in his mind the additional proofs that Jesus presented before his trustworthy disciples. He was to add those proofs to the other proofs that he had already heard about. And he was to review all that he already knew about Christ. Remember, uh, he had been told about Mary and her miraculous conception from his own parents. So he knew that. He knew the story of the virgin birth. 
And remember, go over to John 1 for a minute. John 1, verses 32 and 33. John had actually seen with his own two eyes the Spirit of God descend upon Christ at his baptism. Remember that? And that was God's own promise to him that Jesus was the Messiah. He, you know, before that ever happened, God had told John that when you see the Spirit of God descending upon someone, you're going to know that that someone is the Messiah. And after seeing that particular proof, John himself had said this, and this is in John 1.34. He said, And I saw and bear record that this is who? The Son of God. So he just needed to review all these things in his mind, along with the additional proof that the Lord sent him through his two disciples. So although Jesus did not do anything to relieve John of his physical suffering, you know, his present circumstances there in the prison, because that was part of his divine plan. John had to decrease so that he could increase. However, he did, the Lord did do much to relieve John's spiritual suffering, you know, his emotional and his, his mental anguish that he was dealing with there. His circ- the Baptist's circumstances may not have changed, may not have improved. Actually, they didn't, because shortly after this, he's actually beheaded. Um, but his faith was increased, and his doubts were removed, and his confidence in both his own life work and his eternal hope were restored. And that was the most important thing of all. Actually, at his beheading, he was delivered of everything, wasn't he? And instantly, he was in paradise. Well, the final word that Jesus spoke to John's two disciples as part of his message to the Baptists was a beatitude that we really need to put right along with those that are found in the Sermon on the Mount. Remember all the the eight Beatitudes of the Sermon on the Mount in chapter 5 of Matthew? Well, we need to put this one right alongside of those. This is a very important Beatitude, but it is one that is often overlooked. And where do we find it? It's in Matthew 11, 6. If I have the right, yeah, I do have the right verse. Matthew 11, 6, and it's also over in uh, Luke 7, 23. Same Beatitude. Here's what it is. The Lord said, Blessed is he whosoever shall not be offended in me. That's a great beatitude. This was really a mild, compassionate rebuke for, uh, of John, you know, for his doubts. Now, the Greek word for offended, we've talked about this many times, is skandalizo, which we get the word scandalized. You know, blessed is he who is not scandalized in me. It originally referred to a trap for an animal, you know, an animal trap. You see, John's doubt had trapped him because he had become focused more on what Jesus was not doing than what he was doing. He was focused more on what Jesus wasn't doing, you know, that he wasn't um, having judgment on Herod and Rome and everything, rather than focusing on what Jesus was doing. He stumbled over the Lord's ministry because it was not lining up with his own ideas about what the Lord should be doing. 
So the message of this beatitude is for, for uh, those whose faith stumbles over that which they do not understand about the workings of God in life. And it is for those who stumble and complain of the way that God is dealing with them because they just don't understand. You know, they don't have the big, the big picture. If we see Christ only from our present circumstances and from the present values of our day, then there are a number of things that can cause us to stumble over him. His humility at his first coming offended many people. We're told that in Mark 6.3. You know, they knew he was from Nazareth, despicable Nazareth. He was a Galilean. Galileans were looked down on. They weren't educated. He was a rabbi, but he wasn't educated in the elite schools down in Jerusalem. He was a, a what? He was a lowly carpenter. The people stumbled over this. They were offended by this. He was nothing special to look at. And people knew who his family was. And they even some of them even accused him of being the illegitimate son of Mary. So many people stumbled over his humility. Others stumbled at his doctrine, his teaching. was too hard for them. We're going to see that this year as we look at the Bread of Life sermon. Um, many were offended over his teaching. They stumbled over it and left from following him. You can read about that in John chapter 6. Uh, furthermore, the self-denial that was required of his followers offended the materialistic. And the fewness of his followers and often their lowliness of position frequently offends those who love the praise and the esteem of men. And God's will is often offensive and causes stumbling when it crosses a person's own will. When persecution comes and criticism, again, many are offended and they quit. They stumble and they quit serving because they think that God has forgotten them or forsaken them and that he has even perhaps wronged them that they don't deserve this. Many people need the beatific warning that was given to the Baptist. Blessed is he whosoever shall not be offended in me, who shall not stumble in me or be trapped in me. To be unoffended in Christ means that we have to have a perspective of life that takes in more than just our present circumstances, more than what we can currently see and understand. We must look beyond today's problems to eternity's plans, right? Constantly. We would all agree that if the situation today was the final conclusion of life, it definitely would be full of all kinds of inequities. When John the Baptist was in prison and Herod and Herodias were up in the palace, it certainly was not fair. But that wasn't the end of the story, was it? It wasn't the end of the story. John was instantly in the flash of an axe blade. He was instantly delivered from prison and has spent now some 2,000 years in the bliss of heaven with God. Herod, on the other hand, died a horrific, painful, awful death, only to find an even worse situation after death in hell. The Baptists, has been praised generation after generation. You know, he even received the glorious praise of Christ that we're going to read about next in our lesson this morning. 
while Herod's name will forever be equated with evil. Would you exchange names? Herod's for John the Baptist? Mm -mm. It is truly unwise to ever, ever be offended in Jesus Christ. It is the short-sighted view that stumbles over him. But, of course, that's the view that Satan promotes, isn't it? He promotes the short-sighted view. Satan wants us to concentrate on our present lack today rather than on our future provision. But blessed is the one who does not have this short-sighted view of life and who therefore is not offended in Jesus Christ. Blessed is the one who waits patiently on him to fulfill his whole program, right? One day there will be equity and justice and right will reign. All right, quickly, let's look at the commendation of John and for this, let's stay in, where, I don't know where you are. <laughs> let's look at Matthew 11, uh, verses 7, yes, 7 to 15. Matthew 11, 7 to 15. And as they departed, who is that speaking of? The two disciples of John. Okay, as, as they departed, Jesus begun to say unto the multitudes concerning John, What went ye out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken with the wind? But what what went ye out for to see? A man clothed in soft raiment? Behold, they that wear soft clothing are in kings' houses. But what went ye out for to see? A prophet? Yea, I say unto you, and more than a prophet. For this is he of whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before thy face, which shall prepare thy way before thee. Verily I say unto you, among them that are born of women, there hath not risen a greater than John the Baptist. That's quite a commendation, isn't it? Notwithstanding, he that is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. And from the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven suffereth violence, and the violent take it by force. For all the prophets in the law prophesied until John. And if ye will receive it, this is Elias or Elijah, which was for to come. He that hath ears to hear, let him hear. The Lord Jesus spoke his highest commendation of John the Baptist when John the Baptist was at his lowest point. And that serves to encourage us that God does not forsake us when we are down and discouraged and even battling with doubts. This accolade of John was very much needed at this time. Jesus did not want John's inquiry to in any way be used to reflect dishonor on the man or on his message. He didn't want this to be used against John or against John's message. You know, his disciples came and said, are you the one? And people would say, well, John is having doubts. You know, they'd, they, that would be a reflection on John and on John's message. And on his message was about Christ. <laughs> so when the two disciples of John departed to return to that prison, to the prison where John was in Machairus, and to tell John all that they had seen Jesus do, The Lord turned to the multitudes, which were around him. This is his popular season. And he publicly commended John. 
Notice, however, and this is interesting, that John's two disciples did not hear these words. This was after they departed that Jesus spoke this commendation of John. So the Baptist did not hear this commendation, this good news about himself. Now, why would Jesus do this? Wouldn't these words have helped further to to encourage John? Wouldn't you think? (laughs) Well, that's the way you and I would think, but uh, not the way Jesus thinks. And we also need to remember this, that John didn't need encouragement about himself. He needed encouragement about Jesus. Now, some have speculated, and this makes sense to me, but some have speculated that perhaps the reason Jesus did not speak this commendation to John's disciples so that John would hear it was that he would give no cause for pride, you know, and that he would give his friend no additional temptation during his lonely hours before his death. Pride is a devil. It is. It originated with the devil. It is a devil. It corrupts like nothing else. And you and I need to be careful not to feed it. We don't need to feed it in either ourselves or in others. Right? So perhaps this is why he did not let John. Now, of course, the minute John was beheaded and was in paradise, we know he knew what Jesus had said about him. And the Lord does act in ways that are different from the world. We always have to remember his ways are not our ways. Uh, Men will praise others to their face. And then behind their back, what will they do? (laughs) They'll talk ill about them. Whereas he was just the opposite. He sent back, really, a mild rebuke to John when he gave that beatitude. That was a rebuke, a a nice one, a kind one, a compassionate one, but nonetheless, it was a rebuke. But he spoke his highest accolade behind his back, so to speak. You know, John didn't hear this. One of the greatest tests of our faith is to serve the Lord even when we receive no praise from, from him and no honors for our work. Again, it's to set our focus on that which is ahead. You know, one day we will, but right now we just serve him because we love him. Notice that each accolade from Jesus was introduced by the question, what went ye out for to see? We see that in Luke 7.24, 7.25, and 7.26, and you can find the verses in Matthew, but they're there. And implying that John was not a reed, Shaken in the wind, Jesus spoke to the multitude about his steadfastness. He was not a popular preacher who catered to the crowds, you know, tickled their ears. He was not one who bent down, bowing as a reed in the wind um, to avoid being denounced by the scribes and the Pharisees. He wasn't one who vacillated on his message when it came to even possible arrest. He was a man of conviction. He was a man of tremendous courage and boldness. Some people now have been inclined to think that the doubts of John regarding Jesus did make him like a, a reed, you know, bowing down in the wind. So, and because some people have thought that, I want to quote from F.B. Meyer on this subject. He said, quote, heaven judges not by passing mood, 
but by the general tenor and trend of a man's life, not by the expression of a doubt caused by accidents which may be explained, but by the soul of man within him, which is as much deeper than the emotions as the heart of the ocean is deeper than the cloud shadows which hurry across its surface. The Lord judges us by that which is deepest, most permanent, most constant and prevalent within us, by the ideal we seek to apprehend, by the decisions and the choice of our soul. End of quote. Aren't you glad for that? Especially as women, because sometimes we do have these passing clouds of emotions. <laughs> but he judges us by that which is deepest in us, not by those passing little doubts and temper tantrums and pity parties and that sort of thing. The doubts of John the Baptist were not deep-seated. They were merely the ripples on the top of the water. The current underneath, you see, never changed. And the Lord himself really confirmed this truth when he said that he was not like a reed shaken in the wind. And then he went on and he said that John wasn't a self-indulgent man either. He didn't dress himself in the soft clothing of those who lived in king's houses, even though he himself was an ambassador to the king of kings. His lifestyle, his food, his clothing, his wilderness living was actually a visual protest against the self-indulgence and the self-centeredness of those of uh, you know Israel's religious rulers and her political rulers as well, the Herods. The Baptist was, as, as uh, the people realized and Jesus acknowledged, he was a true prophet of God. And he was what? Even more than a prophet, Jesus said. He was the valedictorian of the prophets because he was the fulfillment of prophecy. He was the fulfillment of Malachi 3.1. He was the messenger prophet who prepared the way before the Messiah himself. So you see, John was both a prophet and the fulfillment of prophecy. I don't know that any other prophet could say that, but he was a prophet and the fulfillment of prophecy. And he had the unequaled privilege of not just predicting the coming of the Messiah, as all the other prophets did, they predicted the coming of the Messiah, but he had the unique privilege of introducing the Messiah to Israel. In fact, the Lord Jesus gave John an amazing accolade when he said, there is not a greater prophet than John the Baptist. That's pretty amazing, isn't it? When you think of such men as such prophets as Moses and uh, Jeremiah and Daniel and Isaiah and Ezekiel. That's pretty amazing. There was no prophet, Jesus said, I mean, Elijah, throw him in there too. Um, there was no prophet, no matter how great, who was greater than John the Baptist. Now, notice this John is not said to be the greatest. Is he? He's not said to be the greatest, but Jesus said that there was no prophet greater. So that means they could have all been equally great. If you think about it, God, think about that. Actually, in Matthew's account, it says that among those born of women, 
Now, this is speaking of humanity in general. There was no one superior to John to his day. And this, again, is because of the role in human history that he played as the herald of the Messiah. His ministry, actually, and you see this is um, wherever it is. I think it's in um, Matthew eleven thirteen. His ministry marked the climax of the law and the prophets. Because Jesus was the fulfillment of the law and the prophets. However, the Lord Jesus then went on to use the greatness of John to emphasize the even greater greatness of those in our dispensation of grace who are actually kingdom citizens. He may have announced the coming of the kingdom and the coming of the king, but he did not live to see the coming of the kingdom in its internal form. Where is the kingdom today? It's not literally here on earth, but the kingdom is within us. John didn't live long enough to see the coming of the internal kingdom. So even the least of us who have been, during this church age, a member of God's kingdom, are greater in, uh, have greater privilege than, than John had, because we have the full divine revelation of Scripture. He only had the Old Testament. We, we know much more spiritual truth than John ever did. The dwarf on the mountain can see far more than the giant in the valley. We, we are kind of the dwarfs on the mountain. He was the giant in the valley, but we can see more and further than he. The slowest student today can learn more information by just a few clicks on a computer, you know, going to websites on the Internet. The slowest student today can learn more information than the great wise men of ancient days because they just didn't have it at their, it wasn't available, wasn't at their fingertips. Even the most simple believer today knows more about Christ and the wonderful truths of the gospel and the Lord's resurrection from the dead and the establishment of his church, which John knew nothing about, and the second coming and the glories of heaven than what the Baptists knew. And all of this means that you and I have tremendous privileges. Just think, our spiritual opportunities and advantages so greatly exceed the saints of past ages that even the lowliest believer today exceeds in privileges the greatest prophets and godly men and women of past ages. Wow. You know, that is a, that's wonderful, isn't it? We are so blessed. We are so privileged. But you know what? It's also very sobering to think about because our great privilege also brings with it what? Greater responsibility. We have more spiritual privilege than even such men as Moses and Daniel and Jeremiah and Isaiah and Elijah and Elisha and John the Baptist. So I ask, what are we doing with that great spiritual privilege? Did you ever stop to think that being a great prophet in the Old Testament period of history was not nearly as great as being a kingdom citizen in the New Testament period of history. That is indeed very sobering. All right, real quickly, if you have to go, I'm just going to finish up. got two minutes. 
Let's look at Luke 7, 29 to 35, the condemnation of the Jews. And this is going to be so fast, I just hope you... I don't know what happened to me 10 years ago when I wrote this lesson. I cannot believe it's only four pages in the notes. I must have been on vacation or something. (laughs) All right, let's look at Luke 7, verses 29 to 35. It says, And all the people that heard him and the publicans justified God being baptized with the baptism of John. That, of course, is referring to when John was preaching and baptizing. The people that heard him, even publicans, um, were baptized of him. But the Pharisees and lawyers rejected the counsel of God against themselves, being not baptized of him. And the Lord said, Where unto then shall I liken the men of this generation? Now he's speaking against the Jews who did not believe. And to what are they like? He says, They are like unto children sitting in the marketplace and calling one to another and saying, We have piped unto you, and ye have not danced. We have mourned to you, and ye have not wept. For John the Baptist came neither eating bread nor drinking wine, and ye say, He hath a devil. The Son of Man is come eating and drinking, and ye say, Behold, a gluttonous man and a wine-bibber, a friend of publicans and sinners. Verse 35, But wisdom is justified of all her children. What does this mean? In these last verses, we are told that the common people accepted John the Baptist's message of repentance. You know, repent ye for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. They, they accepted that message and they were baptized to demonstrate that they desired to repent and to be ready for the king's arrival. However, the religious rulers, by and large, rejected John's message. And they did not agree with what he had to say to them about their need to repent. They didn't even see that they were sinners. So the Lord compares them to a generation of children who um, only want to play games their own way. The children back in those days would meet in the Agora, which would be the marketplace of the local town, and they would play games. And two of their favorite games to play were wedding and funeral. (laughs) (laughs) wedding and funeral I remember as a little girl my sister and I always liked to play house you know this is kind of the same idea so they're like children who only want to play games their own way and nothing else will please them you know we got to do it my way or forget it just as children will so often reject the ideas of other children about what to play you know I don't want to play funeral today I want to play wedding you know, uh, and they will insist on having their own way. So was the behavior of these Jewish leaders. He's comparing them to children here. And that's exactly how they were behaving. Because when John the Baptist fasted, remember what he lived on? Lo- locusts and honey. You know, so when he fasted, we could say when he played funeral, so to speak, they criticized him. You know, we don't want to play funeral. Why is he always playing funeral? We don't want to play funeral. And so they criticized him by saying that he had a devil. That was their conclusion of John the Baptist, the greatest, you know, not the greatest, but none was greater. And they said, Mm-mm, he has a devil. He has a demon. Um, and so they rejected his message. Yet then when Jesus came along and didn't fast, but played what? Wedding. Let's play wedding. And what do they do at weddings? They feast. 
You know, he feasted. He didn't fast. He feasted. What did they do? We don't want to play wedding. We want to play funeral. It's wrong for him to always be fasting and to eating with publicans and sinners, you know. And so what did they do? They criticized him. And don't you like my little child's voice? <laughs> so they called him a gluttonous man and a wine bibber and a friend of publicans and sinners. And they rejected his message. So they were like children, weren't they? They were really like, you know, selfish children. In other words, they found fault no matter what. And people today do the very same thing, don't they? They find fault with something in the Bible or in the church or in Christians, and they use it as their excuse to reject the truth about Jesus Christ. In their fault-finding, they justify to themselves their rejection. And by avoiding truth, they justify their lack of su submission. And they justify their sinful ways. But true wisdom, Jesus said in verse 35, is not put aside or frustrated by these excuses and these arguments. True godly wisdom is demonstrated in the changed lives of those who have believed that Jesus Christ is Lord and Savior. Do you have true wisdom? I hope so. Let's pray. Father God, thank you that once again we have seen the compassion of our Savior and his unlimited patience with us, his slow and sometimes doubting children. How we praise you, Father, for such wonderful passages in Scripture, such as Second uh, Timothy 2.13, which tells us that although we may have our doubts and we may have our times of confusion and perplexity and our moments of discouragement while serving you, and trying to figure out your ways, yet you always, always remain faithful to your word, to your promises. What a God thou art, and how we love and praise your name. Father, draw us ever closer to you through your Son, for we do pray in his blessed name. Amen.